back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Episode 2 of our Mank mini-series is on deck for you guys. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host, also Mike. So are we living in a dystopian world where we're looking back on history right now with uh, <laughs> rose-colored glasses? Or what's going on after that breaking news WB episode we just did? Remember the good times when, <laughs> when movies were made to be put out in theaters like uh, Citizen Kane was? And yeah, those are the seem to be the olden days but you're right our last episode we were supposed to record this episode uh, on december 3rd but december 3rd hollywood decided to just upend itself and we had a big breaking news episode that we had to tackle which involved wb if you hadn't heard the news yet wb is putting all of their movies out on hbo max the same day of their release in theaters uh, for all of 2021 and we break down all of that and ask a billion questions so what the future of movies is we don't know what the <laughs> past of movies is though we kind of have a decent handle on and that's sort of what's bringing us to the mank miniseries here mike yeah it's exciting to study some good movies some movies that meant a lot to us growing up uh, and as film students, like a Citizen Kane, but certainly a formative movie for both of us, I would say, in The Social Network, a movie yeah. that I think we both saw multiple times in theaters when it yeah. came out. And it just was a was an addicting watch, a movie that really got our got our Oscars fandom, you mm-hmm. know, full steam ahead in many ways. So, yeah, this is this is a fun trio of films like the old man, nerdy cinephile movie is going to be the you know culmination of this trio. And they all connect and it, it's fascinating. So I'm really excited that we put these three together thematically, Mike. Citizen Kane was the Citizen Kane of the Citizen Kane age, and mm-hmm. the social network could be the Citizen Kane of the digital age and the social media age. So uh, that's what we're going to focus on today. But kind of like episode one of the Mank miniseries, we're not going to do kind of a, a whole deep dive necessarily into the plot of the social network. We're doing these more as study guides to present to you guys in preparation so you have all the background and information at your disposal that you need to dive into Mank, which was just released on Netflix. Uh, so if you're choosing to watch that this weekend or on the next couple days coming up, if you listen to the first two episodes of this Mank miniseries, you'll have everything you need before our next episode of the Mank miniseries, which is going to be an Oscar sprint profile of said movie, Mank. So let's dive into it, Mike, and let's talk about David Fincher and The Social Network. Yeah, and here's an old school MMO biofilmography. Remember those? Remember when we did those like every episode for first 45 minutes? <laughs> well, to, it was a simpler time. Yeah, today I don't think we'll go 45 minutes. We may, though. We may. It's a lot We're of going pages to. Written down yeah. About David Fincher, his biofilmography. It's an OG production profile uh, to lead us in, Mike. But I think with Mank out today, we're going to tell the first half of the Jack Fincher, David Fincher story that we'll finish in our next episode with Mank. So I think that's fitting and it ties in the whole miniseries Mank, miniseries angle. So we need to begin at the beginning when mm-hmm. David Fincher was born in snowy 1962 Denver Colorado he trekked to school uphill both ways no doubt David's father Jack he was a reporter at Life magazine David's mother Claire was a mental health nurse in true to form they signed their son away to a Mr. Thatcher because they found a gold mine on their property 
I may be getting backstories confused here. That could be the other movie in this miniseries. My bad. I have to double check. All right. Anyway, for the Fitchers, they stayed together and moved to San Anselmo, California. Claire nobly worked at a drug addiction clinic, and Jack became a bureau chief at Life magazine. David was surrounded quite literally by the movie industry there. And this was a movie family, Michael, because when David, when he was very young, he said he watched the making of Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid with his father and decided then and there to become a filmmaker. And I think then and there was like Mm. really a young age, like seven, eight years old. Yeah. And I can relate because when I was seven or eight, I decided to watch wrestling and I grew (laughs) up to watch more wrestling. You did. Very, very similar backstories, David very Fincher. Very much and I. so, yes. Uh, Father Jack Fincher encouraged his son's dreams. There's a noble idea. And he took him to the theaters every weekend and bought him a Super 8 camera to shoot all his own movies in their backyard. But there's also a detail that we cannot overlook because David Fincher's next door neighbor growing up. Tell me if you've heard this story before. We've all been there, our next door neighbors. The guy who created Star Wars, George Lucas who, even though he was 18 years Fincher's senior, uh, would actually end up giving David his first break and first job in Hollywood. So that's unbelievable and extremely lucky. But David Fincher's not necessarily known for just being a lucky guy. I mean, he's cultivated this endless work ethic to match his good fortune there, Mike. And he started that in high school. Uh, when he was working every day after school for the theater club, designing sets, lighting uh, all the school plays. But that's not where his days would end. He would go and be a movie theater projectionist for a while, and then he would go be a production assistant for the local TV news. Yeah, there's one interview where he talks about his time as a projectionist, and he mentioned that he had seen you know, films 200 times a piece, films like All That Jazz in 1941. So he's a guy that's always worked both ends of every spectrum in the filmmaking industry, I think. And he keeps it going. He keeps the role going after graduating high school, where he would forego his college education. He did not go to film school. He basically became an unpaid intern, an apprentice, and he supported himself at night during his day jobs in the industry, supported himself at night with waiter and busboy jobs and this tireless work around the clock work ethic eventually led him full circle back to his sitcom neighbor George and his <laughs> resume that was a fully loaded resume at this point got him hired with that connection to his neighbor by Industrial Light and Magic Michael in 1983. We're already seeing similarities. Orson Welles comes from the radio world doesn't yeah. really have a background in film. He's more of a stage guy, and he gets the world thrown at his feet. David Fincher doesn't go the conventional route years and decades later, doesn't go to film school, kind of makes it about his own way here, and talking about two of the most impactful films, both in critical uh, and box office acclaim ever, uh, as a result of their auteur visions. Uh, as a VFX producer, Fincher worked on the animated film Twice Upon a Time, which then earned him an assistant cameraman roles in something just as notable as Twice Upon a Time. Maybe you've heard of them. Little known films known as Star Wars Return of the Jedi and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Not a bad way to start your IMDb resume, Mike. And like Orson Welles, like you just mentioned, the guy is 21 at this point and yeah. he's going to become a superstar in his mid-20s. So he's that accelerated. 
What a jerk. Anyway, (laughs) certainly an accelerated apprenticeship, and David no doubt took full advantage of it when he got the opportunity to direct a commercial for the American Cancer Society, a little notorious because uh, he got his don't smoke message across by showing a fetus smoking a cigarette in the womb, Mm. and they, as he would tell it, that commercial would actually go on to be banned in a few countries. Yeah, don't smoke out there, kids. I hear it's addictive, (laughs) and uh, if you need... A good reason not to smoke? Watch that uh, manipulative uh, commercial there. <laughs> a little bit of a one-sided story, sure. But this unforgettable Cancer Society commercial, Michael, landed Fincher his first feature directorial job on the Rick Springfield documentary, yes. The Beat of the Live Drum, which, of course, is a sentence that just landed me in the Alliteration Hall of Fame. <laughs> but that's all after years after plugging David Fincher into the movie industry, which is what that uh, project did for him. What's your favorite Rick Springfield song, Michael? Oh, my God. Why am I not remembering all of this? I can't think of any myself. Hold on. I'm I'm searching it out. We said we were going to try and go faster today, and here we are looking up Rick Springfield because apparently I didn't go on enough. Don't talk to strangers. Affair of the heart. Love somebody. Exactly where we thought this episode would end up. Us IMDBing Rick Springfield. Rick Springfield hits. Why do I not recognize any of those? He's had to have done something huge. Don't talk to strangers. I've done everything for you. I don't know. Jesse's girl. Jesse's girl. Jesse's girl. There it is. Yeah. That's the one. I have a good friend named Jesse. He gets tired of that no, song. No, that's the one. I was like, there's yeah. one. There's one song right. where I know Rick Springfield's right. song from, and I've always you know, liked him. All right. The documentary <laughs> about Jesse's girl basically plugged him in to the entire music industry, and David Fincher formed a phenomenally, I'm going for that Hall of Fame uh, record again here, a phenomenally successful ad and music video production company uh, as a result. And this was Propaganda Films, which, again, in light of these two projects that we're reviewing so far, is fairly interesting, Michael. Yeah. Here, David Fincher basically hires and recruits the next wave or a next wave of Hollywood directors, including Antoine Fuqua, Michael Bay, Zack Snyder, Michel Gondry, Spike Jones, and Gore Verbinski, just to name a few. And for most of those names, we will never forgive him. So for the 1980s, more seriously, Fincher put out a ton of noteworthy commercials for Levi's and Nike and Pepsi, et cetera, et cetera. But it's his music videos resume with artists like Paula Abdul, George Michael, Michael Jackson, Aerosmith, Billy Idol, and of course, Madonna, to once again only name a few. It's all these music videos that made his name in Hollywood. And do stay tuned. I think we're going to highlight some of these videos on our upcoming Fincher Awards show. But just in case you weren't listening that story again the guy who did fight club also did the iconic (laughs) music videos of straight up janie's got a gun and freaking vogue and freedom george michael's freedom but yeah i mean he's uh he's he's a legit music video director he's not just some guy who showed up on beavis and butthead one uh (laughs) one weeknight anyway uh david always dreamed of working on movies though michael as we know from this full and luscious biography that we're giving him right now (laughs) and in 1990 he jumped at the chance to take over for a fire director on alien 3 or alien cubed or alien the one where (laughs) she shaved her head or whatever you want to call it but uh as you might remember mike alien cubed was one of your examples of a film set from Mm. hell in that great episode we did with amanda atswell entertainment and for the people out there you should go back 
there. And he, if there anything good came out of quarantine, it was that episode with Amanda I agree. from Swell Entertainment. And Mike, you told the crazy production story. But for our purposes here, let's pick up in the aftermath because Fincher – it was a critically appalled movie. It was a movie that didn't really do well at the box office, but Fincher did get some recognition and a little bit of critical acclaim from critics who mattered, and not least of which was Rolling Stone's Peter Travers, Mike. Yeah, and Fincher's also on record saying he made the gravest mistake in helming Alien 3 and that he actually listened to people. And yeah. so that's that's something to think about every once in a while. But the point is, Fincher was never a bad director. He just got caught up on a film set from hell and luckily he had a fan in peter travers there like mike just told you and another irresistible dad joke commonality fincher moved from the magazine to the band and directed a music video for the rolling stones called love is strong and after Mm. his greatest professional failure in alien 3 fincher made the grammy winning music video of the year for that song because the Rolling Stone is a band, and it also is a magazine. You see there? You catching up, people? You see how we do these things? <laughs> and you got to explain a dad joke. You can't just let the dad joke be. you got to over-explain it. As we know, major awards obviously are magnets for scripts from Hollywood producers, and luckily for all of us, the next script Fincher liked from a Hollywood producer was the original Andrew Kevin Walker pages for Seven, where Fincher said he got to John Doe revealing himself, noticed how many pages were still left to read in the script, and knew immediately that he had to direct it. So luckily, Peter Travers wasn't the only friend in the business because Brad Pitt quickly gave his approval while Morgan Freeman followed shortly thereafter. The cool nugget about this is that they were going at the studio, they were going with a rewrite of the Andrew Kevin Walker Mm. script. They were going to use somebody else's rewrite, but somehow, and it's almost like there must have been Dirty Pool somewhere, like someone must have liked the original script, and that's what Fincher got on his desk, and that's what he went with. So it's kind of interesting. You know, almost the perfect kind of pseudo-noir crime movie there, detective procedural maybe. I don't think a change would have served that movie well. I can't believe that was a movie that I literally threw out after buying a $30 copy. I've told this story before. <laughs> yes, and yeah. then years later, it became like one of my favorite movies. Well, now, why did you throw it out? Because I remember you telling me. I was me so story, scared you... of it. I was just like. Oh, you were scared of it. <laughs> you, you weren't like offended by it or disgusted by it. You just wanted the evil out of your presence. I want. I, yes, I went I to see. church. I went to All church right, understandable. the next day because that movie was so evil. Anyway, under Fincher's brutal, relentless direction, Seven would go on to become a critical and box office hit, making $320 million worldwide. And it's right about now, at the start of his success, that his career does something very endearing or crazy or ill-advised. It depends (laughs) who you're talking to. But Fincher Fincher begins to make and develop movies alongside his family, Michael, for in between his second and third films and he had some problems with producers in his past david fincher go figure would marry a producer and cian chafin uh who'd become his producing partner for the next 24 years and i think they've been married for 26 years and to the present day she continues to produce his films and she started on his third film the game with michael douglas there and much like the uh the nolans 
and and they're producing partnership much like you go all the way back to Thelma Ritter and uh and Alfred Hitchcock for Christ's sake. <laughs> it's not not bad work if you can get it. if you marry the producer, you are the director, you're hiring the writer who's your father. Uh it's it, I am going to go with endearing more so than psychotic, although if he wasn't as talented as he was in David Fincher, maybe it would be a little more uh, selfish and psychotic, but you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder here. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> That's where you went with that. Okay. So after Jack Fincher retired from Life magazine and after a lifetime of educating his son on all the classics of film history, Jack started writing screenplays of his own. He wrote one about Howard Hughes. It would never sell, and it's no relation to the biopic of Hughes from Martin Scorsese in 2004. Uh. Aviator. <laughs> Jack Fincher wrote another script about artist Margaret Keene, which also has no relation to 2014's Tim Burton movie about plagiarist husband and big eyes. And also, can you think of two more diverse directorial storytelling styles than Tim Burton and David Fincher, by no. the way? No, absolutely not. <laughs> but thanks to Netflix and David's perseverance, and thanks to this flash forward in our bio here, Jack's third and final script, Mank, about the writing of Citizen Kane, has now been made into a feature film. So to read this full story in one sitting, make sure you guys check out Variety's featured piece entitled Magnificent Obsession, David Fincher on his three-decade quest to bring Mank to life. This was written by Brent Lang and wanted to give him a shout-out. But, Mike, this story chronicles how Jack Fincher wrote the script for Mank in the 1990s, and ironically and not surprisingly, David Fincher forced his own father into many reasons rewrites and <laughs> look i mean his first draft jack's first draft was more focused on the question of screen credit and the battle between mank and wells but david fincher wasn't all that interested in this angle saying quote i told him that it seemed like a lot of sour grapes and that i didn't think people really cared about who got the credit for what the drama didn't appeal to me and he said on that first draft I'm just trying to imagine me forcing my father to do something again out of <laughs> taking the joy that Can you he imagine? doing it. <laughs> Can you imagine giving your father notes? <laughs> I think it would go well. But... Hey, can you change the whole emphasis yeah. of this entire story? <laughs> Please. <laughs> so, uh, son David made dad rewrite draft after draft, and the more Jack Fincher focused on the story of Mank and the derivation of Citizen Kane, the more Fincher was interested. David wanted to understand the complicated relationships between the triangle of Mank and Hearst and Davies, which is probably why Fincher ran so well with Sorkin's social network that focused on the triangle of Mark and Eduardo and Sean, as we'll get to later in this episode. Finally, we'll get, we're starting to get into social network, but almost, almost there. Mike, David Fincher is very proud and rather alarmed that his dad's script aged into something far more timely now than he could have ever imagined back in the late 1990s. And the same could be said. Uh, with the social network uh, founded by antisocial people before Facebook <laughs> would cause somehow political strife around the world the same way he wanted to direct his father's script of Mank years before yellow journalism and, and everything that was happening with Citizen Kane and Hearst made its comeback as fake news. So the Finchers had Mank set to become David's net Next, be uh, next best picture is a great podcast, but next picture <laughs> in the late 90s, right? This was supposed to happen after the game, but I do think it's a bit fortuitous that it didn't happen. But here's what they had lined up. They were at Polygram, and Jodie Foster was set to be Marion Davies, and Voldemort, of course, mm. Voldemort, the name we, we do not mention on this podcast, 
because we don't want to, even though he was a producer on the social network, whatever. But you can guess based on what he ju- who he just w- worked with in uh, in seven, mm-hmm. and you can put two and two together. But uh, he had those two. Yeah, he had those two in line for this. Yeah, so Voldemort's name will not be mentioned here, but we'll charge onward because, as Lang and Fincher attest to it, the major sticking point in Mank negotiations became the Fincher's insistence on shooting the film in black and white as, quote, a nod to Greg Tolland's expressionist cinematography in Citizen Kane. And Greg Tolland, he was the infamous cameraman that we kept mentioning over and over again that worked side-by-side with Wells in the shooting of and placement and blocking and lighting of Citizen Kane. Mike, Uh, I don't know if you know this, but they had a table that would contract and protract. Oh, son and then, of a yeah. bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Go look up backstories on Citizen Kane, kids. You'll find that story everywhere. Uh, Fincher now cites a few more reasons as boilerplate, but we want to save the end of this Mank production story for our Mank episode, so let's get his filmography up to 2010, Michael. Yes, Mank falls through, and Fincher surprisingly goes from that old cinephile delight to making Fight Club. Yes, <laughs> Fight Club, which only does modest box office. I think we forget this. I mean, this was a box office flop in a way because it made $100 million on a $60 million budget. But in that DVD age to follow, Fight Club, of course, became that dorm room classic yep. in the early 2000s and uh, unequivocal smash hit. So Fincher became so popular with younger audiences to prove it. He was one of the final shortlisted directorial choices for 2002 Spider-Man, Michael. We had... We had a situation where David Fincher, coming off of Seven, who probably would have cast Brad Pitt as Spider-Man, <laughs> was going up against Sam Raimi and everybody involved. And this is what David Fincher says about his pitch. He goes, I went in there and told them about what I might be interested in doing, and they hated it. And apparently <laughs> they hated it because Peter Parker was much older. It was a very dark vigilante story. Maybe Batman would have been a better property for Mr. Fincher. It didn't happen. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you though, like in the age of Marvel movies and comic book movies we're in now, that pitch now I want to see. Like right. in 2002, I don't think it would have worked if that was the first Spider-Man we were getting. But like now, having been like overexposed and oversaturated with superheroes, I would take a different take on the Peter Parker story instead of seeing him get bit by the radioactive spider for like the fifth time in the last 15 years or so. They didn't uh, know the ending of the Peter Parker story, and they had they had a, a whoop-de-doo hairdo and the crazy-ass <laughs> dance, the goofy-ass dancing uh, Tobey uh, Maguire at the end uh, of that. They, they did not stick that landing, I'm sorry. That was Sam Raimi just giving the middle finger to every everybody who ever was invested in that series. What? I, Ugh. happened there anyway. so that that that's a that's a series worth doing at some point where <laughs> i know he hated i know he hated venom i know he hated uh, venom and he was reluctant to include him at all and that he got little little chided that he had to put venom in that third movie i yeah. remember reading that at the time but wow. all right so is fincher spider-man in the spider-verse somewhere we'll never really know but instead of making a superhero film fincher stuck to the thriller genre he ended up making panic room which was both a critical and box office hit once again making nearly 200 million dollars on a 50 million dollar budget and look i mean when this happens when you get a a, an over performer at the box office that allows you to basically pick and choose your projects and fincher takes on two 
two huge projects. First, his obsession with Zodiac, which would ultimately premiere in 2007, to again, another modest box office that would take years to reach the cult hit status that it's on now as one of the best movies ever made, and I won't hear any yeah, different. And, and that's bullshit, and I, I'm still mad at my <laughs> friends that I went to the theaters with 13 years ago at the time to not appreciate the brilliance of it, because that movie is just outstanding in every way. But can you imagine working on that movie and, and simultaneously also working on The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Michael? Jesus. Which I guess is what he did. I mean, they were so close. Anyway, if it was back-to-back, I don't know. Or if he came in late on Benjamin Button, again, I, I don't know. But he... Uh, he earned a breakthrough of another kind with Benjamin Button, taking on that tentpole with, you know, his success at the Academy Awards, Mike. He loves Brad Pitt. Yeah, Benjamin Button <laughs> earned 13 Oscar noms, including nods for Brad Pitt, Taraji P. Henson, Best Picture and Director. But this curious case only ended up nailing three wins for makeup, VFX, and art direction. Still, though, David Fincher earned himself a place at the Oscar table, Michael, and you would think that if his next movie was a once-in-a-generation masterpiece, there would be no need to overlook it. However... However, and I have taken a lot of heat on this podcast just for mentioning that this is an okay film. It's bullshit. However, the King's Speech came along. And Tom Hooper, who would eventually graduate to Cats. Yeah, yeah. Who won that bet? (laughs) Yeah. Tom, who can you imagine? Can you imagine? David Fincher just made mank. Four-letter word, Cats was who he lost to. Can you imagine what he's saying right now to himself after Cats and uh, having lost to Tom Hooper? Oh, I really got me heated at the time. Really got me heated. I'm still not over it. I agree. I was uh, totally rooting for the social. But again, it's well. it's a parallel to Citizen Kane in another way. I mean, Citizen Kane ends up losing to How Green Was My Valley, you know, at the, at the Academy Awards. So it, it, very eerie, the two crossovers here. And I wonder if there's a lot of, you know, similar reasons for it. Not maybe the industry blackballing that happened with Citizen Kane, but certainly the uh, the fact that it was a highly contested at the time that Zuckerberg was, you know, this bad of a dude when he was mm. employing so many and he was so rich and nobody really knew all the, uh, you know, the snafus involved with that uh, that business model, let's just I'll say. I'll never forget that uh, Jesse Eisenberg was on to host SNL soon after the film's debut mm. and giving his monologue, the real Mark Zuckerberg showed up. And, mm. you know, Jesse Eisenberg was like, oh, what'd you think of the movie? This was all a bit. It was all written and scripted. <laughs> and Zuckerberg goes, oh, I thought it was uh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that person. Anyway, he, so he is not a, not Zuckerberg approved. Was well, this movie. Zuckerberg's worth a hundred and one billion dollars. I, I researched that before. You know, it's a part of today. Yeah. Can you imagine? Anyway, the Social Network would go on to win three Oscars, Michael, for original score, film editing, and adapted screenplay. It had eight total nominations that also included picture, Eisenberg, director, cinematographer, and sound mixing. And we will never be okay with with what it lost, Michael. No, and it should have had more. I, I put on Twitter when I was re-watching this for the billionth time in preparation for this episode. I've never understood why I was so hot and cold with Andrew Garfield, and, and re-watching this, I, I, I 
had a come to Jesus moment. Andrew Garfield should have been nominated in the supporting yeah. actor category for this movie. And the reason I'm so hot and cold with him is because I don't, in my opinion, I want to see him at this level all the time because I know he has it in him. But I, this movie should have had more than eight nominations. It certainly should have, should have had more than three wins. So no, I will never be over it. And that's that's something I'm willing to, it's a hill I'm willing to die on, Michael, I think. A tall, tough guy in that suit or a guy that acts tough in, in a suit like that. It's it's hard to act tough in a suit that looks that good. Can <laughs> basically rage and cry at the same time. I give him a lot of credit. Anyway, Michael, uh, give yes. us the plot premise for this one. All right. So it's about the making of Facebook. Is that good enough for the plot? All right. We'll read it for serious now. As Harvard student Mark Zuckerberg creates the social networking site that would become known as Facebook, he is sued by the twins who claim he stole their idea and by the co-founder who was later squeezed out of the business. I thought it was really funny watching the documentary about the making of this movie. Yeah. How every cast member, because this obviously those interviews were done before the movie came out, every cast member was tripping over themselves. It's, it's not just about making a website. It's not just yeah. a movie about making a website as if they wanted to prepare you and just entice you into the theater. And then, oh, by the way, it happens to be one of the best movies of this generation. And look, this is a premise that basically includes... You know, scene A and scene Z, Mike, in the premise itself. I mean, we just like with Citizen Kane in the first yep. like minute Good of that point. movie, it, just like the Titanic, and you know the gosh darn Titanic is going to sink, even though you're kind of rude. What? Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> Mike, we have the whole story in front of us. So the devil is in the details, and the intrigue is in the why here. And that's fascinating for a premise construction and for constructing a movie in general. I wonder if Fincher is aware of the similarities between himself and Orson Welles. Yeah, I wonder if Citizen Kane is kind of an influence on him, just because they, the, the similarities here are striking. I mean, they really are striking, and I wonder if he purposely, you know, part of the reason that he wanted to get the Manx story done, obviously, in, in tribute to his not only his father, but to kind of have that whole thing come full circle. I mean, he has to know by now, in 2020, that The Social Network is one of the greatest films of ever. Uh, he has to know is... he did that. This is slightly unrelated, but I always thought of a mentor character as, you know, from a writer's perspective, basically taking your older self and talking to your younger self mm -hmm. when, when trying to write mentor characters. Mm -hmm. And I'm very curious to now see your thoughts and hear your thoughts on David Fincher's portrayal of Orson Welles in Mank, because I think there's some of that going on. I think oh, there's some, you know, maybe there's some self-criticism, but that is, that is a study. I mean, it's not, he's not big in the movie. Orson Welles is not in a lot of the, the movie Mank, but what he is in, he's saying some things that really matter to the plot and and certainly you know we can look at it from from all these different angles having studied both directors now can't wait i, I mean I, I still have not seen the movie yet as and as we record this and i'm planning on kind of dedicating my day to it tomorrow so i really really can't wait but all i right, may Mike. watch it all day tomorrow. yeah i mean we just may watch it from start to finish tomorrow that might yeah. happen yeah. anyway mike expectations uh, i said on the movie marathoners pod Last December, that The Social Network was my favorite Best Picture nominee of the decade. Would you say something similar? How high do you rank this? Let's let the cats right out of the damn bag right now uh, if we're not going to smother those cats because they were directed by Tom Hooper. Let's let them out of the bag. Well, that's a strange... I was gonna. I was, I like I was just gonna cats. say I was allergic to them anyway, so I'd keep them in the bag and stuff. No, I can't finish that sentence. I never said it. You can't prove it. Anyway, uh, I'm very I, as high as one can be on any movie. I think the Social Network is truly uh, probably the the greatest film of the 2010 decades. Yeah. Uh, I think it's certainly the biggest Oscar upset, and it's certainly. 
I, I the reason I was so adamant about Get Out uh, and why I still hold a candle for Get Out's being cast aside in favor of The Shape of Water is because of the social network. Uh, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I think it, there's there's a blight on the Academy when they look back and they had a chance to kind of nominate the movie of the moment, nominate the movie that even at the time is so clearly going to have a lasting impact and is so clearly defining a specific moment in time for when it was made. And when the Academy misses those chances, I think they are huge misses and, and very kind of embarrassing opportunities. Uh, all of that is going together. I could not be higher. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. I think if you're a movie of the year, best picturer. Mm-hmm. Like you are, where that's mm-hmm. how you kind of look at. Best yeah, picture. Or the, mo- the movie should be a snapshot of the year they were made is what you're trying. Yeah, this is the perhaps the most obvious loser ever that should have won. Yeah, uh, because that certainly year, is to me. Yeah. Yeah. My God. I mean, that year was so important for uh, for Facebook and how it was rocking the uh the, the international boat with everything going on that would ultimately lead way to, to 2016. So this is uh this is another ominous watch for us, Michael. And I've watched this and rewatched this almost every year, but I've never really gotten the Dr. Frankenstein feeling from Mark Zuckerberg, from Facebook, as much as I got this study this year after this election. Because Isn't that crazy? This movie just, again, resonates and reverberates and freaks me the hell out. I mean, there's another similarity, right? We were talking about Citizen Kane being made 80 years ago and how well it reverberates in 2020. And now, I mean, is Facebook play, has Facebook ever played a bigger role than what it's done in the past two presidential elections over the past four years? It's it's not just on in the American elections. I mean, think True. about. True. I mean, I just watched the uh, documentary "A Thousand Cuts" about the Philippines and how mm-hmm. Facebook is controlling everything, and how Twitter is controlling the elections in Saudi Arabia with the uh, the dissident. I mean, I mean, you Facebook know, th- was also responsible for uh, the organizations of the civil uprisings in Egypt uh, years ago as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once upon a time in Venezuela, another documentary I just watched about politics and about Venezuela. <laughs> Facebook running the show. Exactly. I mean, it's just all everywhere else. It's all across the board. And, but and, hey, this king's got a stutter, so that's cool. Anyway. The king's got a stutter. <laughs> Here I was, a naive young film student, thinking that the Academy was just trying to reward who they thought was the best made movie of the can't, year. Can't and get that's over what it. I had. But no, then can't I met you. It. And you said the movie of the year. I was like, yeah, that actually makes some good sense. And I, I kind of like that angle on it. And But I thought that way for so long because of this particular snub, I would say. Because that movie seemed like a real technical, real smooth and polished and blah, 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 the King's Speech. And this movie seemed like the audacious, you know, attention grabber and the, and the cool new film that typically lost in Hollywood, I, I would say, if you look back at Oscar history. Yeah. I don't think you're wrong, and I, you know, we didn't bring up how green was my valley often, but I'm sure if we had we lived through that snubbery, you know, it would have lasted, made as big an impact. This is, there's a couple best picture upsets that just, I think, look foolish in hindsight, and I think this is one of them. I think the Citizen Kane snub is one of them now. We didn't live through it, so we don't have that personal right. attachment, uh, but this, it's another way in which those two movies and those two directors and auteurs are kind of tied together. Well, let's continue on with the connection to Citizen Kane with some script thoughts, composition thoughts, direction thoughts here, Michael, because these connections are legion, which is a movie you like for some crazy reason. Michael, <laughs> you said it in last episode, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, this yeah. is 
this is as clear a representation of that theme as there's ever been, right? I mean, good God. Yeah, it's it's the God complex written in a more, not focused, I would say, but a more uh, insidious way. It's 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 more, I think, in your face than than you know. I, I feel like the uh, the Citizen Kane character is one that's kind of eroding over time, and I make mm-hmm, that whole mm-hmm. pitch when we're reviewing that movie. This Mark Zuckerberg character, not to say anything about the man himself, because who knows, but I, and, you know, it's important to remember that movies aren't historical documents either, as far as like biographies go. But this character portrayed by Jesse Eisberg is, is somebody kind of thirsting for power because he's always thought he was better than everybody. Yeah, any slight, any uh, yeah, anytime someone crosses him and vengeance is his, saith the mark. Yeah, I mean, it is exactly. just a, a situation where every petty grudge and all these, you know, ego maniacal twists along the narrative just inspire not only his innovation and inspire his, you know, <laughs> entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, it's all built on like this l- literal lust for power and lust for women and lust for attention. And I guess you can hearken it back to the whole Citizen Kane thing. And he just wants to be loved and, and he just wants to fill that void. But my God, is this guy in vindictive and invention it's- in this movie is war. It's a full blown war. It's a little different, I feel, because Citizen Kane wants to be loved, but he can't love himself. Zuckerberg in this movie loves himself and doesn't understand why everybody doesn't love him. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough to figure out because it's another character study where we're still trying to figure out the main character all the way up until the last scene of the movie. And I right. think that that's a feather in Eisenberg's cap, quite frankly. And I was rooting for Eisenberg as to, to win. I remember this, too. I wanted him to win over uh, Colin Firth that, that year as well uh, for Best Actor. But yeah. I was obsessed with this movie when it came out. And I, I think Jesse Eisenberg, and if you listen to him tell his portrayal of this, and he would even stay in the Mark Zuckerberg character after the scene was cut, which is an amazing feat if you know anything about Fincher's filmmaking. Mm-hmm. How you'd have to repeat the same film a hundred times in a row to stay in that character afterwards. But I, I, I think he really found himself becoming that guy and becoming that cocky and arrogant to the point where he's on record saying, I didn't like this one scene by the pool because in my mind, I couldn't picture this character ever having fun and being happy. <laughs> it's crazy yeah. to, to think about a 20-year-old kid. Right. That way, right? right? That's what he was. He was 20 mm-hmm. years old when he became a billion, you know, multimillionaire. And I think he was like 22 when he became a billionaire, for Christ's sake. Unbelievable. But, uh, you know, this this is a playground for a screenwriter like Aaron Sorkin, who just thrives on dramatic irony in every scene. I mean, he's got all kinds of things going on from one jibe to the next. And I think it's going to work uh, for Jack Finch, Fincher's Mank the same way, I think that uh, at least structurally it works similarly in Citizen Kane, Mike. They all have flashback story structures to them. They're all cautionary tales to tell these flashback stories that continue to boomerang all around, uh, to steal a term from the big picture today. They boomerang all around, back and forth, all across the timeline. This didn't even feel like a flashback. Like, Citizen Kane is so deliberately set up in storytelling, in the, the flashback storytelling mechanism. Mm-hmm. This one, you, I kind of get lost. I kind of forget that the, the depositions are happening. Do you wonder if uh, maybe I misconstrued uh, that and then this movie is actually a flash-forward structure in a way? Because the flashes seem to be to no, the there's depositions. No, some, there's forward. some times that are clearly, I mean, like the chicken scene, you know? Mm-hmm. That's clearly re- self-referential. So there's some times that it's clearly, we're, 
the present moment is where we are in the deposition. Yeah. Well, I, I think Citizen Kane is more political. Mank is going to be more political now. But I do think the social network, like I was saying before, is the most politically charged and politically prophetic. So when they... You know, when they keep going back and forth to these depositions and, you know, you being a lawyer and you understanding how, the, you know, the the law and probably too many lawyers being out there have reshaped American society and how everybody can sue any anybody for anything at any time for any reason, whether the, the reason courts are always not. at your disposal, Mr. Winklevoss. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you think about what we're dealing with now politically and all the, the ridiculous phony lawsuits going on and, and oh, my God. God, Michael. I mean, this is this is as prophetic a political story as I've seen in a while. I don't understand the standing the Winklevosses think they had. Well, exactly. That's the whole thing. Like, who, but they got paid. But they got paid. They, I, I know. mean, they essentially won. And I don't under. I, I was kind of. Inf- it's nothing I had ever picked up on before this watch. But just watching this now and and, and kind of taking the legal angle on it, I was kind of upset at them the whole time because clearly these are two different websites, right? Clearly. And it's, but again, it's almost as if, you know, if you have chips at the poker table, you can make right. things happen. Right. I guess that's a way to look at they it. They have yeah, means. They can make things, things happen. They have high yeah. priced lawyers. They can make things happen. And ultimately. Sir, you're right. Know, it is, it is a story about excess as well in that. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, we got laws. We got ridiculous phony baloney lawsuits with no evidence behind them whatsoever going on on a national scale with mm-hmm. the highest stakes in the American history right now. In the political sphere. And this movie is foreshadowing that with a couple of, uh, you know, egomaniacal uh, college seniors who didn't like a nerd, you know, basically beating them to an idea. My God. Yeah. And the uh, the foreboding and terrifying messages that they actually ended up getting something out of it. So that's I guess in a way. So is what's happening on the national stage, considering the erosion of the uh, the public's faith in the electoral system. So there's there's that, too. Oh, I mean, great. It's Another just a fun like, parallel. Right. It's just like Citizen Kane, though. I mean, Citizen Kane, remember when the Inquirer had the two headlines? I think we, I forgot to mention this in the last episode, but they had two headlines ready. Yeah, we didn't mention that, and we should have. That was a great scene. You're right. Before his, uh, before his election was officially announced, right? Mm-hmm. And one said that he had won. It was mm-hmm. a triumph. And the other said that the election was a fraud. Fraud so, at polls. Nothing's changed. <laughs> nothing's changed. Everything was always this bad, right? That, that Can yeah. we take that? from it yeah i mean how depressing is that as a message here <laughs> so it's really again i'm coming away with this with this dr frankenstein pov of yeah. this creation spinning out of the control of its creator i mean everything all the problems are just foreshadowed foreshadowed or foreshadowed mm-hmm. based on you know the story of its founders it's unbelievable. And maybe there's something to that in terms of these being the movies that define their generations in a way. And I'm sorry if you don't feel this way, dear listener, about the social network. You don't feel it's that great of a film. But mm-hmm. I mean, there is this giant political struggle and there is this ultimate good versus ultimate evil going on in the subtext of every scene. And maybe that's just who we are. You know, maybe we're all tempted more by evil and, and monetary gain than we'd like to admit. And that's why we all relate so well to the stories here. And. I, I don't want to get into Mank much more, but I want to tease this one last thing about Mank because, okay. you know, this is all about egoism, this movie, and, you know, who's taking credit for a team effort, right? Mm-hmm. And 
Mank is, in, in a way, and I think in a lot of people's minds, they think it's about the the debate between auteurism in the film industry and, you know, the, the industrialized uh, studio picture, right? And a lot of people's mm-hmm. hands in the, in, in the picture. Well, David Fincher, who is perhaps considered one of our greatest auteurs, this is what he says in that Brent Lang article about auteurism. He goes, quote, I don't know anyone who makes movies who is concerned with being an auteur. <laughs> There's plenty of blame to go around has always been my philosophy. So uh, basically Fincher is against auteurism. He's against this egoism and this, you know, this monopoly on not only credit, but a monopoly on power in, in a film production environment. I wonder how much Aliens 3 had to do with his perspective there. Well, I wonder. I just, but again, I mean, you think of a David Fincher production, you think of David Fincher, you know, just basically being, you know, the toughest coach who ever coached, right? Right. And 200 takes, and he's mm-hmm. got to control everything, and he's a he's a god on set. Right. But he, here he is saying, and here he is making a movie about deferred credit, and and I just think... When, when he makes a movie like The Social Network and he lets somebody like Aaron Sorkin shine the way he shines in this and he lets credit, almost to a fault, defer to Aaron Sorkin at the Oscars. Because I think that's ultimately what happened, Mike. I think a lot of people gave The Social Network credit on the page more than they gave it credit to uh, Fincher's directing. I mean, we always talk about the partitioning of the credit at an awards ceremony, right? So this is a situation where... I just think that this script it mirrors the fallout of the script. It mirrors the uh, the actual history, obviously, of Mark Zuckerberg. And again, it, it all it, it's this uh, somehow this perfect triangle, this miniseries. I'm very proud of us for putting these three <laughs> films together because they're all about egomaniacs and the pitfalls of, of being an egomaniac. Now, as true as that may be, if you do watch, and it's on YouTube, it's 90 minutes, if you do watch the behind the scenes of the making of this movie, I mean, they show not quite full table reads because it's only Fincher, Sorkin, Eisenberg, and Garfield, Mm -hmm. but they show the guys agonizing over some words that Sorkin, I mean, Fincher is grilling Sorkin a couple times. (laughs) It's it's unbelievable because I thought Sorkin was kind of a you know from everything I read and heard about the guy I thought Sorkin was kind of this overbearing overlord too. Wow. But Fincher is is killing him about like three word phrases and why is it used here and what has happens with you. It's it's really amazing and it is a, a collaborative collaborative effort. So I wonder if you know on the taking it without seeing anything behind the scenes that's certainly how it comes off but i wonder if the reality is also that fincher takes pride he he feels like that oscar that sorkin won is half his anyway well, and sorkin I, feels vice versa you know there is a quarterback on a team right there is a leader right. of a team and and fincher certainly is the leader but uh i de- i definitely think he brought out the best in sorkin and perhaps vice versa you know, I think we're going to look I at Fincher's that, career yeah. and just say, yeah, this is the high watermark. This is his best movie. And it's, it's hard to beat this movie, I would say, because of that, you know, clash between script and uh, and, and director. I, I think uh, I think this is going to go down as an all timer. Uh, I for also a lot of wonder if, if this came out, you know, a, a decade too soon. Because... Oh, definitely. Definitely. It's prophetic. I mean, because yeah. it's again, it's about the cult of 
you know, and I don't know if it's about the cult of personality, but I mean, these three movies are all about how these egomaniacs are struggling for power and how they basically are unforgiving. If if you mm. get if you cross them once, then you have your debt to them. Yeah, no, your your wrath is or their wrath is coming down on your head. Yeah, and they'll plant a story about you doing animal cruelty in the anything. local paper. Yeah. Do anything. <laughs> Michael, uh, let's briefly talk about the production values. And this is another production value segment that we could do a full episode on. We could do a, a base full of curriculum on this. But I think my biggest takeaway on this watch is just, once again, a reminder that this might be some of the best movie music, the best original scoring i have ever seen in a film maybe i'm dating myself because this was the coolest original score ever uh, <laughs> for me from trent reznor of nine inch nails atticus ross right of radiohead i mean those two guys uh just did a, a, a incredible job and they did something new with this well yeah and they start i i mean it's very un nine inch nailsy first of all it's very <laughs> slow and kind of haunting in that way but the the operatic, I guess, mm-hmm. version mm-hmm. of Creep, that was kind of the first time, and it's now been done to death in every trailer, but it was the first time we had a well-known song redone, slowed down, and put into to sell this new movie. And, yeah, and yeah. it happens in every freaking trailer you get now, even for something like, you know, the something an action movie on Netflix does it, for Christ's sake. But, like, this was the first time, I think, that, like, in the marketing of such a big movie that was obviously had big Oscars aspirations, everyone kind of stopped and went, wait a minute, what the hell is that? <laughs> and if it wasn't the first time, it doesn't matter, Mike, because it's right. the first time you remember. First <laughs> that's time that's we what remember. I'm trying to say. No, yes, I exactly. I mean, I, got, I remember getting goosebumps at that trailer, and I'll be honest with you, there are multiple times where you get a low note from the piano in this story. It's like so a good. gong, right? So I mean, good. that synthetic piano. We're using all the wrong musical terminology, by the way, we realize this. <laughs> but it is, when you get to the crescendo of that device, that low note, and, and when it happens in the finale uh, at the Facebook headquarters, mm-hmm. and it's the moment where the goosebumps on the back of your neck are... I mean, you, it's almost like you can feel every one of them. That's a disgusting analogy. I, I need to. Anyway, it's true, though. I need a dermatologist is what I'm saying. And this is why I'm not a music critic. It was an awkward edit in the middle of that, but I'm, I'm really excited to study this score because it reminds me of skin issues. I have... Oh, man. That's your mountaintop, dude. Um, I have this movie on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'm the only person who still believes in physical media. And <laughs> yeah. I uh, I played it, and I just left the menu on because the menu is just those piano notes. Oh, really? With, like, nice. some audio from, like, you know, somebody typing on a computer and stuff like that. But I can't. I left that on for probably 20 minutes while I was doing other research just because it was so pleasant. That is cool. And Netflix doesn't do that. Netflix should do that. If Netflix they should. That's a good idea. would mirror... Uh, I don't want to give them more ideas about how to take <laughs> over the world. But, Mike, uh, I think the other produ- uh, Oscar-winning production value we got to talk about in this section is the film editing. And this is perhaps, especially in those deposition scenes, Fincher's fastest cutting that I, I've ever seen. It's almost like the Hitchcock's shower scene, every single one of these depositions. It is so quick when you really study it. It is so ridiculously quick. There are so many cuts. I mean, this movie snaps. It tumbles forward. 
Yeah, he, and I imagine this is the same with any Sorkin script because the the dialogue is so snappy and witty. But he would set up a couple cameras, and he would set up main cameras staring at different uh, characters within the same scene. So instead of, and not to say that he didn't do a billion reshoots and retakes, because he did, mm-hmm. but he would have the same shot uh, from a different camera for the same screen, from the, from the same scene. So it was catching the authentic reactions and the authentic back and forth between characters just on different cameras when it happened. That's really smart. Then again... Yeah. I wonder why that exists and also 300 takes exist. But Amanda Seyfried... Because he's a madman. I can yeah, answer that because he's crazy. <laughs> I don't know. We got to listen to the Feinberg forecast, uh, Feinberg uh, podcast awards chatter there, Mike, because uh, Amanda Seyfried, I think she lets the cat out of the bag on why Fincher does all that. Anyway, we probably should have known that by now. We're doing a Fincher <laughs> miniseries, but maybe when we do the full series on him. Anyway, kudos to the editors. I know Kurt Baxter was one of them. Kurt Baxter will be the editor of Mank. He's been Fincher's go-to editor since Benjamin Button through Social Network, uh, winning two Oscars for this and uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Mike. This is amazing to look at. They kind of cheated a little bit uh, in that they shot on location in Boston for a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. And I think you can see that. I think that jumps off the screen. But again, I, I stand by this. I don't care what technical level or what you know big six category level you want to judge this movie on. It deserved more than its eight nominations. So performances, again, I think we're going to be relatively quick. I love the ensemble here. I Same. thought it was a star-making performance from Army Hammer and Army Hammer. <laughs> uh, I knew dozens of guys like the Winklevi growing up and, and going to a, 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 a prep school. And then, mm-hmm. I, mean, I didn't go to the prep school like they <laughs> like they went to, for Christ's sake. But, I mean, their idealism, like masking their elitism, just drove me crazy. And I, I hated a lot of people when I growing up. <laughs> I guess, which is still kind of terrifying to me. And I liked a lot of people, too. A lot of lovely, I hate a lot of people, and I need to see a dermatologist. Yeah, I'm a judgmental bastard. That's why I'm a movie critic. I'm not a movie critic because I'm just a, you know, flaky. uh... Well, there's something to that, though. I mean, right? I mean, look, there's nobody more judgmental than this portrayal of Mark Zuckerberg. And this is a story everyone relates to in some way, shape, or form. So you're not alone, sir. Timberlake is mesmerizing in this. but uh... Very good. And I thought Andrew Garfield was as well. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Garfield and that relationship and that back and forth between him and Eisenberg. Uh, Finally, there's not a lot of female players in this uh, movie, but Rooney Mara literally launches her career with very little screen time in that opening scene at the bar. And then so good in it, too. I mean, teary eyed reaction shot, man. That teary eyed reaction shot uh, in the at the end of the first 15 minutes. That is her career right there. I mean, she's going to star in everything after that moment. And Rashida Jones. Rashida Jones carried a lot of weight in this story with her tiny role as well in those deposition rooms. And wanted to shout out Brenda Song, too, who, uh, you know, I haven't had a girlfriend light anything on fire in my bedroom yet, but she was very believable and someone who would. I was afraid of her, uh, as was Andrew Garfield. But, Michael, of course we say, watch this movie. Yes, absolutely. For the love of God, watch it again. Watch it again and again and again and watch it around when you're watching Mank. And then listen to the spoiler section if you haven't seen this movie for some crazy reason. We could not recommend something more. Let's head into a quicker spoiler section. Let's do it. Spoilers ahead! This is a spoiler warning. 
This is the spoiler section for the movie The Social Network, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar as episode two of our Mank miniseries. If you've not seen the movie yet, uh, there's a good place for you to hit pause. Go check it out. It is available right now for you to watch on Netflix. Uh, if you've seen the movie already, which you better have at this point in 2020, or if you're just <laughs> curious to hear our thoughts, this is where you want to be. Going to be kind of a quick spoiler section of The Social Network, episode two of the Mank miniseries, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Uh, this movie's plot has been analyzed to death, and yes. rightfully so. So I don't think we're going to have a whole lot to say about it other than just saying, hey, remember that? That was awesome. But uh, yeah, I, I do kind of want to get, you know, into some elevated themes. And I, I guess I'll start with the main plot line or something or put it into some historical context here, okay. Michael, because I do think like this is a strange nexus between a true story that is actually uh, something that happened but based on depositions told from a book. It seems to be true playing out in today's world. Uh, if, if, if it was ever doubted, we're now realizing the truth of mm. this founding father story for Facebook. Again, I'm crushing the F alliteration today, but Michael, <laughs> this is a culmination of the anti-hero stories of the late 90s early 2000s that kind of 15 year stretch with the sopranos and bake breaking bad on tv with influential cult classics like american psycho to old boy and of course you know you had there will be blood and drive coming out early in 2011 but this is like that anti-hero climactic story that almost won best best picture at the end of that decade that played out in history and played out on screen do you think Zuckerberg's an anti-hero in this? Yeah, I mean, he's... Well, I mean, it's just... It's about a villain. It's an origin story of a villain, which is how I view an anti-hero story. Okay, and I think yeah. you're trying to... You're, I mean, you're forced to relate to him because he's the protagonist. So that's how I view it. I, I feel he's, like... I, I feel, feel like, like he's... He, God. Well, I also feel like you're rejoicing in, in, to put it in biblical terms, the temptations, all of the ego flexes, the muscle flexes, or the you know the the, the times where they're partying like their their butts off, or where they're surrounded by all the flash and you know where you're kind of reveling in that. You're reveling in what the devil shows you. I mean, it's a Faustian story, which is what. Uh, an anti-hero story is and you're here in your whether it's blow and johnny depp and and all that or whether it's goodfellas and the first three quarters of that or whether it's tony soprano and the bada bing and all that all this male fantasy bullshit it's like james bond but with an actual realistic ending i would say michael because you're dealing with <laughs> you're dealing with all of this, these real consequences in an anti-hero story, I would say, in a tragedy, I would say. And maybe I'm mixing up my terms, but I mean, do you view an anti-hero story differently? I, I just, when I think anti-hero, I think of Walter White, and I think of a guy who's doing everything we know objectively is wrong and bad, but that he still, there's a part of him that wants to do good, or at least has a good basis for doing so, yeah. a good reasoning, at least at the outset anyway. The Zuckerberg character is just wholly unlikable, I feel like. Well, I think, well, that's the thing. Studying this movie, like, he's he's got a right to feel the slights. Like, he calls out Rooney Mara in the first scene for slighting him. It's like, why, why don't you think I can get into these clubs? Fuck these guys. And then, oh, you invited me into the... You invited yeah, but it's me fuck into the these room. guys because I want to be one of them. Well, but that's the whole thing. Like the, he's he's in this each one of these situations, in, in each one of these situations, and he's overwhelmed by envy, right? He's overwhelmed mm -hmm. by one of those right. seven deadly sins, and it's his his weakness in every single one of the scenes. But yet, 
we get why he's got to cut the cord with uh, Timberlake. We understand why he's got to cut the cord with uh, with Andrew Garfield. I mean, he needs to get away from these people because they're failing him just as much as he's failing them. I mean, and the story proves as much for us. So that's why I say, you know, anti-hero because I think we we can relate to his decision making in a Michael Corleone sort of way, you know. That's it. I, mean, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, but you're not saying you you don't think we can relate to his I his coldness. The, I yeah. I think if the impetus for what he I think for the if the impetus for making Facebook is as it was shown in this movie, I would yeah. love to know if that Zuck on it blog was an actual thing, and if that blog he wrote when he was getting drunk writing for face writing Facebook for the very first time in his dorm room was. I would love to know if that was an accurate portrayal of events because I think if it that's was. true. Well, if that's true, he was just whining. <laughs> like, right. he's just a guy. He's a grown baby that doesn't know how to deal with rejection and disappointment. Well, he's, like, he's not an adult kid. at that point. I mean, right. I get kid. that. He's and not an is, adult, literally. This yeah. is also a situation where these really smart kids take over the world. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, literally, literally and metaphorically, yeah. he wasn't an adult. I agree. And they're in over their heads. I mean, yeah. this ego trip is a bad trip. For him, and he faces some severe consequences that luckily he's able to over, or maybe unluckily he's able to overcome because of the power that he achieves. So, right, yeah, it's a scary story. It's a scary story because he does succeed. And the the irony of him wanting to like thinking, obviously, it's 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 a veil. It's a thinly veiled envy of these powerful dude but he wants he wants to be one of them because they get all the women and yet what does he do he makes face smash which is just a different way of objectifying women and being a gross misogynistic human being i, I mean that, that irony is not lost on me either i think that was very clever as well yeah, it's what is this thing really built on what yeah. are the principles that make this thing function what are the social principles what does it say about all of us who the minute i mean i i remember this i was the second semester of my freshman year in college of uh, late 2003 there when I think we got Facebook. Maybe it was our third semester, early 2004. But basically this movie, when they're in Palo Alto that summer is before I went to college. And I, right. I mean, when they expanded, you know, then boom, this hit. Hit this hit when I was a freshman in college, and this thing was a craze. Yeah. Everybody was on Facebook for every single thing, and unfortunately, once all our parents got on, that's when the <laughs> shit really hit the fan. But when we and were the just Nazis on, are back, the yeah, Nazis are we, back. Yeah. When we were just on, it wasn't this democracy is falling overseas. No, and, no, no, it was it was, it was just, really cool. It was cool. It was very very cool, which is obviously the whole one of the whole themes of the Facebook asset itself throughout this movie. Um, yeah, Zuckerberg is not portrayed well at all throughout this, I think. I mean, he's a very guy, he's, he is, he's a mob boss for the most part. Yeah. Like, he does what he has to do, but he can't, he's a guy that can't even be happy. He can't even pretend to be happy for his supposed best friend, whose money he's basically taking without notice beforehand at this point, when uh, Eduardo talks about being punched by the Phoenix and says it's a diversity thing. Uh, the best Zuckerberg can do is say, yeah, it probably was a diversity thing, but so what? And, <laughs> like, fuck you. And it, it's like he resents the money from the very beginning. Right. And he, that's it, not right. what he's after from the very beginning. And he's got this disdain for the money and the fact that he has to ask for the money and the fact that he has to bring his friend involved. It's almost like, you know, he's looking for collaboration from his friend, from Eduardo. He doesn't want to do this alone. But the more he tries to be a team player, the more... 
that you know he twists himself up with all the drama of the team the more he eventually you know i mean lonely that you know the head that wears the crown right the mm. more he separates himself and has to push everybody away and his and unforgiving he has ma- to nature won't yeah i mean he, he can't have any friends that's the whole point of the story that's right. why the ending is so profound where he sends a friend request to erica at the be- it, his you right. know i don't want to say his well i'll I just say citizen kane has a similar structure right where the la- very last shot of the movie has to deal with the uh the, the what he was you know reckoning with at the beginning mm-hmm. of the damn movie mm-hmm. I, I, that's a that's a phenomenal point i i absolutely agree with it and I, I just think that character is so well written. I mean, every character is so well written. I, I've talked about Andrew Garfield. You want to talk about Justin Timberlake as well? I love uh, Justin Timberlake. All the Sean Parker stuff. I mean, going backwards, I mean, his denouement, I mean, that's scary and slimy and, and fitting and brilliant. I mean, when you look at that guy's, what he got in trouble for, Sean Parker back in the day. And, yeah, I mean, he was just a 22-year-old kid, 23-year-old kid right. at the time. So, you know, again, 22 and 18, is that wrong? 22 and 19, I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but he got in huge amounts of trouble for it, and he was paranoid, and it goes back further than that, right? But bottom line is, you know, he's at the party doing drugs, and then he is cut off. And the fact that, you know, Sean is the last to let him down when Sean has all the money scenes of building him up and... Mm -hmm. and taking the company far. I mean, the moment on Jesse Eisenberg's face when he realized he's alone and he's literally alone in the, you know, abandoned party. Everybody's he out there. Even have the nice shot, the very uh, Fincher-esque, the light going off behind him as the lawyer's wrapping up in the room behind him there. Incredible. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 he's alone in the shot at the Facebook headquarters for the millionth follower. And then he's alone in the very next shot in the conference room that's vacated. And he gets this polite little conversation that, of course, he's an ass to, with with uh, Rashida Jones there. Mm-hmm. And then he sends his one friend request the 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 uh, motion of least resistance the least you know <laughs> just the the bare minimum of human interaction and he hits but, refresh and that's, it's they did a good job too fincher did of it's tough to feel bad for for uh i was gonna say eisenberg but zuckerberg because he's he does have moments of self-awareness in this as well like when he said when he's trying to hire his interns for facebook mm-hmm. and he's making them do this ridiculous shot thing and eduardo said is this really the most efficient way to do it and his immediate response is you're right a more efficient test might be to see if they can keep a chicken alive for a week and then he immediately follows it up with that was mean like he knows when he's being a dick it's great and, acting yeah and, but and it's also written into the script too i mean a similar yeah. scenario where you know andrew garfield uh, you know he runs into uh, Rooney Mara's character at the restaurant later on, right? And Andrew Garfield goes to him, and you apologize. You, you apologize, did the right thing. Right? You apologize, yeah. right? And then you see his whole face sink. He's mm-hmm. like, "Fuck, I didn't do we that." Have to and, he, he, and again, <laughs> you, he recognizes that he did wrong, but he he just doubles down on wrong in this movie. Right. Exactly. Every exactly. Time. That's so well done. So well done. So uh, let me ask you, as far as the Parker character goes and his interaction with Zuckerberg. Based on how this screenplay was written, do you think Zuckerberg called the cops on the party? Oh God! I mean, that's that's fascinating. I uh, I wonder if there's a slight. I mean, was there a slight in there from Sean Parker where he would get vengeance on Sean Parker? Just just to me, it was just it would it would have been more of you've outlived your usefulness to you. I mean, the slight would have been. The slight would have the party happened 
after Eduardo was removed, right? Oh boy, I, the party happened um, the house after party? Eduardo was a, re, was removed. Yeah, so the slight would have been how tough Parker was on Eduardo on his exit when Zuckerberg said you didn't have to be that rough on him. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. So he would have to have told him, told on him immediately afterwards. And I just wonder, you know, I wonder if they showed that it would have been more interesting. Maybe maybe they couldn't prove it and they make, they they want you to think as much. That's what I'm thinking. And they want you to think he wants to be alone in in that regard. Yeah. The fascinating thing is to read after the fact that basically he knew going into these depositions that he was going to have to settle. And he was basically just doing the rigmarole, doing the dance for all these lawyers, knowing all along that he was going to have to settle for X amount of dollars, some ridiculous, ungodly sum. Which is hysterical. And Fincher had it dead on. I mean, with the the scene where he lifts up his notepad and there's just doodles and drawings on it. (laughs) Yeah. You think about the money at stake. But again, it's about the why. It's about it's getting back to what's at the core of all this. And it's just sending this friend request from a lonely guy who, Mm -hmm. you know, is not an asshole, but is just trying to be one. He's trying trying so so hard hard to to be be one. one, Right. Except I think he is an asshole is my point. (laughs) Well, the the whole point is he is an asshole, but he's also trying hard to be one. He's all of those things. And I guess, you know, if you look at the why you just wonder, I mean, this is a guy who's just envious. He's so envious and he's, he's so, I mean, a character, it's a character. I mean, I don't know Mark Zuckerberg and and how dare movies, movies aren't historical documents. So you can keep saying that until, yeah. And and he's in his early twenties and we were idiots when we were in our early twenties too. But like, you know, I mean, this is a guy when he hears that Victoria's Secret anecdote, right, at the club from Justin Timberlake, instead of thinking about, you know, oh, my God, I should be conservative and actually just build this thing slow and have a steady rise. No, he's thinking about, no, let me get it up to the half a billion dollar valuation. Let me get Let me not be that guy who sells too early. Let me be the guy that gets insanely rich and all of that to the, you know, the upbeat synth music of of the club and, and the, the Seanathon Appletini sequence. I'm like, God, this is a guy that takes, you know, the, the Faustian temptations of the devil, right? Uh, yeah, of absolutely. that screenplay of, you know, of that timeless archetypal story and runs with it and then gets away with it. That's the crazy part of this particular story, because even though he's alone at the end, I mean, that's why it's, it's, I guess he doesn't get away with it is what I should say, because this, the fascinating part is that you know the catharsis is he realizes he's all alone and he's his friends well it's 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 the trump it's the trump criticize you know criticism of citizen kane thing it's how do you look at it if if money's the only thing that matters then yeah he's still king zuckerberg is if you know much like citizen kane if it's the deterioration of the mental state and the lack of emotional relatability to anyone then yeah he is alone he lost yeah um, otherwise, Mike, I, I think there's some all-time tell-off scenes. They're, they're mixed into this movie. They're all all across the board. I mean, even like something as small as you know that was Bill Gates. That was Bill Gates. I mean, it's <laughs> who, who is that? I mean, there's just so many ironies and so many you know great moments in this movie. I mean, there's there's not a bad scene in the film, no. even though there's some. I think there's some morally bad things in the film, right? But I, I wonder how self-aware they were. I mean, were they, you know, there's a transphobic joke in there. I mean, it's it's not okay, bottom line. 
and especially in, in modern times here, I wonder when that movie was being written and being made, if they understood that this is a scuzzy line said by a scuzzy guy in a scuzzy situation after we just did, you know, the Sodom and Gomorrah setup, right? right. For and the, the, uh, the ultimate for the, irony being the, that the whole movie, the whole movie is about, you know, social media and its impact on our day to day and how those jokes have become vilified and yeah. not okay to everyone's awareness now because of things like Twitter and Facebook and, and the, you know, the mob, for lack of a better term, calling that out and, and telling people, hmm. you know, these are actual human beings. That's an actual three-dimensional chess moralistic way to look at um, the irony of, <laughs> of the story in a way because that's a positive. It's a it's a fine that's a positive. But I mean there's animal cruelty here. Don't fish, eat other fish. I mean, yeah, but it's <laughs> fucked up what you did, man. <laughs> right. Right. It's crazy. Uh, this is just one of one of the best. I mean, right down to again, if you watch the documentary, Fincher, I guess, had like was so anal he even printed out fake college course load class schedules that it. the camera never even notices, but they're just hanging up in the backgrounds of shots in the dorms just to bring that believability how was this thing not more oscar celebrated i mean there's even scenes like the crew scene in london right that race that looks mm -hmm. like everything from the uh dragon tattoo flashbacks right shot with that uh, <laughs> lens or whatever i mean right. that crew race in london is awesome with this change in this this uh you know the opera song there again mm -hmm. we don't know musical terminology but you know cross cut that with the audition drinking game sequence in the dorm and you're actually following these guys code and my goodness, I just think uh, th this this movie's a masterpiece, and it's got some you know it's got some issues like we were saying, but uh, and more morally and thematically than perhaps uh, cinematically here. So I'm just uh, I'm I'm in awe uh, of a lot of yeah. it. I had one worst that I wanted to Go get ahead. into, just one: the security guards in that big scene between Andrew Garfield and Zuckerberg. They're the worst <laughs> security guards ever. Number one, they're late arriving. Number two, like this guy breaks the laptop. Okay, they're late arriving. They don't get but there. But these security guards don't step in front of the guy when, when he gives that big wind up towards Sean Parker. I mean, what were they just too afraid that he would sue him for a hundred billion dollars that uh, they didn't want to, you know, lay hands on him at all? These security guards. I mean, I get it, but these security guards are supposed to step in front of a punch. I did notice that there wasn't at least someone saying, hey, oh, <laughs> you, know, like, but, you know, I talk about the nickiest, nittiest picks of nitpicks. It's you know? the nittiest of nit nitty picks. You're right. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Get better security. Mark Zuckerberg, cinematic <laughs> sure character. Sure he did. He's worth $100 billion now. Isn't that crazy to realize? It's disgusting. <laughs> it's it's so uh, well. Hey, I mean, look. Now we're gonna be forever entangled. Is forever that connection between Citizen Kane being the Citizen Kane of yeah. you know the forties and David Fincher making the Citizen Kane of the social media age and literally making the movie about Citizen Kane and that's going to be uh, our next stop in this Mank miniseries as we will go for an Oscar sprint profile review of the movie Mank coming up next. But mm -hmm. as far as the social network goes, as far as David Fincher's bio goes, as far as Jesse Eisenberg, Andrew Garfield's and Justin Timberlake's portrayal and Rooney Mara and Brenda Song mm -hmm. and et cetera, everyone else goes, uh, we want to hear from you as always, dear listener. Uh, what are your thoughts on the social network? Do you think it was robbed by the King's speech? Do you think it's one of the best movies of its generation or are we too high on it? Let us know as well as any other thoughts, comments, questions, concerns about anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. You can leave us all of those on our social medias. 
We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts, including and especially the Apple Podcast app, where if you are listening to us today, if you would be so kind as to go into the app and give us a five-star review, that would be very, very cool of you. Michael, uh, we just kind of alluded to what's coming next, but what are some words of wisdom to end on? So... We're going to watch good movies now, right? I mean, this is... Uh, <laughs> Fingers crossed. This is what we need to do if we if we get a little laser focused on too many new movies, which some of them mm-hmm. are very, very good. But I think you and I are telling ourselves with this miniseries, with uh, the fact that we're going to get a little Christmassy going forward, we're going mm-hmm. to do something like that and what's coming next. But, you know, we need to, we need to make sure we have a balanced diet like Chris Gore likes to say it, and we have, we have a balanced movie-watching <laughs> diet, and we go back and we watch some of these. We do some of these retrospectives, so I'm really glad we did this. I'm excited to get into Mank, which will connect to both of these movies quite a bit, and then the Fincher Awards show, and uh, Words of Wisdom is just watch good movies, and for us, talking to ourselves, let's, let's do some re- retrospectives uh, more, as much as we can. I, I, this, I love this movie. Awesome. Ben, make make better be good. <laughs> I hope it's good for you. I really do. I don't know what you're gonna think. I'm so worried. That's the biggest worry I have this weekend. Does Mike one n- not love Mank and therefore hate Mank? That's what I'm, I'm terrified of this. I'm equally scared. I too am very scared. So guys, when reality and I don't know, maybe another movie sucks. You can come watch these ones with us. We're Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make a word season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you all very soon. See you.